0: Look, if you really wanna achieve your goals this year, stop trying to make it to the peak of the mountain on day one. One of the things you do with people who are struggling is you make the simple even simpler because then they can get a toehold. You know, like if if they're really barely able to move, I had one client, you know, he was, uh, he had a hard life, man, he was like 85. He'd fallen off a ladder and broken his neck And they had permanently fuse it. So he was basically like this. He could hardly move. He was so depressed. He literally couldn't get out of bed. You know, it was awful. And he was in chronic pain because of his broken neck. And so, you know, the first thing I did with him was get him to sit up for like 30 seconds. That was it. That's where he had to start, you know. And after, I I worked with him when he was in the hospital. After two weeks, he was walking down the hall and able to sit up and read for, you know, five or six minutes. And he got out of the hospital. He went home. and But he had to start with the simplest possible steps. And, hey, man, you start. This is the definition of humility in some ways is that you start progressing where you can start. I think about this a lot because there's a lot of people that are objectively or subjectively down and out in their lives. That's how they feel. And it's often too intimidating to present them with the idea of, climbing Mount Everest today, a proverbial Mount Everest. Like just pick yourself up and go to the gym and work out and be healthy. Right. right? And that Yeah, no, that's not gonna happen. It's like putting them at the foot of Mount Everest, but the small commitments we keep to ourselves are often really undervalued because they seem so trivial. Like you saying Well, that's the casual contempt. That's another aspect of that. Well one of the really difficult things to learn when you're down and out is how far you're down. Because it's humiliating. You know, I was ill recently, and when I started to recover, I couldn't really, I re- couldn't really button my shirts. I had to learn to do that again. I did I had forgotten how to put my hands on keyboard. I didn't know where to put my hands. So I had to learn to type again. Now, I hadn't lost all the knowledge and it came back quite quickly. But and the reason I'm saying that is because one of the impediments to people who've really taken a blow in their life is that. Things have fallen apart around them so badly that where they have to start is humiliating even to consider the rule. It's a pretty straightforward rule when you want to get back on your feet. And the rule is you have to make the task small enough so that you'll do it, no matter how small that is. You know, and that can, I've worked with people. I mean, one of the things I've become well-known for is my advice to start by cleaning up your room but I had plenty of clients who couldn't, they couldn't go home and clean up their room. They hadn't cleaned up their room for like 20 years for all sorts of reasons. Maybe because every time they did try to do anything positive in their family, no matter what it was, they were immediately punished and undermined. And so If they even went home and dared to start cleaning up the room, they'd face resistance within the family that was just a manifestation of the 50,000 times they'd been discouraged in the past, but also a move that would upset the insanity that characterized the pattern of familial interactions. And so actually, when if they even made a move to clean up their room... What they were doing simultaneously was confronting the dragon in the family that had made every single person in that household insane for like five generations, right? So it looks simple. It's not bloody simple. And so in a situation like that, you cut it down so that maybe the first thing they do is clean up. Like maybe they look inside one drawer and see the mess that's there and just look at it for a minute and think about how they might reorganize it if they were going to. When people are very down and out and they decide to make a move forward, in some ways they're facing the whole panoply of problems that confront them in, in the guise of that single problem, right? It's all lurking behind it, right? Mm. It's like, you know, they see the tip of a reptile's tail outside a gigantic closet, let's say, and they look and they think, well, that's just the tip of a tail, how, what harm can it do me? But it's connected to the whole damn beast. And the advantage to that is that if you make that first step forward, you're actually advancing in the form of, in the face of all that opposition. The disadvantage is that the first task seems so small that you literally have to be on your knees to be humble enough to lower yourself to take that first step. You know, God, is that all I can do? I'm so useless. You might even be more useless than that because you might fail at it. I had lots of clients who would come back. You know, we'd make a deal that they would do something simple. I remember one client. this is such a comical story in a terrible, dark way. You know, he was an overgrown infant and he was 30. He was still living at home in his messy, you know, high school room under the thumb of his mother, conveniently for him because then he never had to do anything. And he had managed to entice some girl into sleeping with him and she got pregnant and now he's going to have a son and he had enough sense to come to me and say you know I'm kind of a wastrel and I've mucked up my life but maybe I'd like not to destroy this kid so is there something I could do to put myself together so you know we talked that through we negotiated which is what you do with a client if you're sensible you know you lay out the problem first okay what the hell's wrong with you do you think you have to listen And listen and listen while the person unfolds everything that might be wrong. They put all their cards on the table and then you sort through them. And You think, well, some of that, even they'll figure this out themselves. Some of that's not really the central issue. And so you imagine they lay all the cards on the table and then you kind of get rid of 90% of them. It's a symptom, it's a symptom. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 it doesn't really bother me now that I've talked about it. That doesn't seem key. I think I'm really done with that. That isn't interesting to me, but they'll still have to lay it all out. And then you focus on the problem and then the next thing you think is ask them is something this is great general problem-solving strategy is okay if this could be better, as far as you're concerned, what would better look like? And then they have to lay their cards on the table about that. So you do the same thing. And now you have the diagnosis, that's the problem statement. And now you have a hypothetical uh, cure, let's say, and now you need a strategy, right? And that would be the steps in between the problem and the final destination. And then you break down the steps until you find a step that they that the person will take. And you have to do that experimentally. So the first step for him was to vacuum the carpet in his, in his room. And so this is literally what he did. He brought the vacuum. It was a stand-up vacuum. He v- brought that into his room, but he only got it to the threshold. And then he left it 45 degrees across the door, le- leaning, and he walked over it for a whole week. And so then he had to come back and tell me, you know, and he was embarrassed. He said, you know, I I got the vacuum cleaner just to the doorway and I left it there. And then instead of bringing it into my bedroom, I just, you know, I put an obstacle in my own path and stepped over it for a whole week. It's a very humiliating thing because he knew that his life was on the line. And he knew that his son's life was on the line. And he knew that he was one useless bastard for not being able to bring that vacuum cleaner into the room you know but the proper interpretation of that in part is well you got the bloody thing out of the closet didn't you you know so what we did was re- renegotiate this is called technically this is called collaborative empiricism it's a behavioral approach for clinicians and the the collaboration is well as i said what's the problem diagnosis What's the potential solution? The person has to be on board with all this, right? I mean, they have to be the people who decide that's the problem. You can't enforce that on them. They have to discover it for themselves. And the same with the solution and the same with the strategies. It's like, I don't know what's right for you. I'll listen. We can jointly explore what might be the right vision for you. And then we can break that down into a strategy, but you. You have to be on board with the strategy. You have to feel that this is right for you. It's absolutely 100% crucial that it's voluntary. And then we'll say, okay, well, maybe this is a solution. Why don't you go implement it? Come back next week after having attempted this. Let's see how it went. You know, and sometimes people come back and say, well, you know, that went great. And it started me and I did three other things. And you know what? We seem to be on the right track. And sometimes they come back and say, nope. That didn't work at all, like with the vacuum cleaner. And so then you have to think, what you do in that situation is make the task smaller. If you make the task small enough, I've never seen anyone not be able to progress if they made the task small enough. But, you know, that can be pretty humiliating. Now, the upside is that once you take that first step, you've looked the beast in the face and you'll start progressing, not linearly, but exponentially in speed. So what's cool is that it doesn't really matter how small that first step is, because it'll start doubling and anything that doubles grows unbelievably quickly. And so that's a very useful thing to know too. And that that's true when you're learning anything new. It's like, you, you'll feel like an imposter, you'll feel like a fool because you are, and you'll think I'll never get there. And and it might, be, the destination might look very distant, but if you take a sufficiently small first step and get the ball rolling, you can be cruising along at a pretty good rate, generally faster than you'll think. What's so, going on in one's psychology there? Is it building evidence of your own capabilities and capacity? Definitely. What seems to happen when you expose people to, small but challenging tasks, it does two things. It makes them more skilled because now they're actually dealing with the problem. And so they're acquiring the new perceptions and the new behaviors that are mastery. So they're actually expanding their domain of conceptual structures and actions. That's, mm-hmm. that's both conception and skill. But at the same time, they're seeing themselves as the actors that can change the direction of their life. For example... When you do exposure therapy with people who have phobias, agoraphobia is probably the best example. So agoraphobia is a condition where people will become so terrified generally of life that they they often literally can't go outside their house. If they go outside their house, their anxiety levels climb to the point where they have a panic attack, which is like the complete disinhibition of the fight or flight system. Very overwhelming experience. People will go out and they'll have a panic attack and then they'll avoid where they had the panic attack. But then the probability of the panic attack starts to spread so that wherever they go, they have a panic attack and then they end up stuck at home. And it's quite a common condition. Now, the people who develop that are generally women, and that's because women are more sensitive to anxiety than men. They're generally women who had an over-dependent relationship with their parents, maybe particularly their father, They're generally women who went from their father to to a boyfriend who was either overbearing and overprotective or who was enticed into becoming that by the dependency of the person, of the sufferer. And then, so imagine you're a dependent young woman, you haven't learned to stand on your two feet. Every time you had a problem, you were taught to seek authority. You sheltered behind the protective walls that someone else had established for you. You married someone like that. Now, He's, he died or you're getting a divorce or or so that wall is starting to come down. Okay. So all that existential panic starts to rise. You start panicking when you go out and you end up at home unable to move. Also thinking you're the only person in the world who's suffering that way. And so what you do is you find out, you, you do a problem analysis and you find out their core fears and what agoraphobics are often afraid of elevators and that's quite convenient because you know there are elevators everywhere so you can start having them confront their fear of elevators so how do you do that well if they're really terrified you say well let's look why don't you come sit by me and and uh, let's look at some pictures of some elevators and you say look at the elevator okay now imagine being 20 feet from it how are you feeling they'll tell you they're nervous, you know, they're afraid they're going to get trapped in the elevator. They're afraid they'll have a heart attack. They'll, they're afraid that they'll be in there with other people who are watching them panic and have a heart attack and being humiliated. So the, the two big categories of fears for people are like painful death and then public humiliation. And if you have a really good anxiety fantasy, it's that you're going to undergo a painful death in a very humiliating way. And so that's what they imagine happening in the elevator. So it's not exactly that they're afraid of the elevator, right? They're afraid of death and humiliation. And the elevator is a portal to the realm of death and humiliation. It's like, I'm afraid of an elevator. Okay, how afraid? Can you, could you look at an elevator from 100 yards down the hall? Well, like, if it isn't 100 yards, then 125 yards. Like, you'll find some threshold that the person can tolerate. Okay, so now you're at the threshold where their, the magnitude of their confidence is precisely matched with the size of the apparent dragon, right? So, and you they feel that. It's like there's a place where their fear will, they'll say, that's close enough. It's like, okay, now you're on the edge. You're on the edge. So now we'll dance on the edge. We'll move you a foot forward. Okay, so let's move a foot forward, okay. Anything negative happening? Well, I'm feeling a little nervous. Okay, well, let's just stand here for a bit. Keep your eye on the elevator. Don't, don't hide, because you can avoid by just not looking. And We do this all the time. We look away, and the bigger the dragon, the more we're likely to look away. You know, people don't, people don't like to look at, and you can understand why. People will avert their eyes from atrocity, right? And they'll certainly avert their eyes from the thought that they could participate in atrocity. And you could think of that as the heart of darkness. It's, it isn't, because you could look at the fact that you could take glee in the commission of atrocity. And, and no one wants to look at that. Well, you start, and you have to look at that. You have to look at that in the final analysis. But one step at a time. You know, and, and you can do that with any problem, literally any problem, break it down, break it down, break it down public speaking anything going to the gym you know. anything anything a small dose you know a small dose and it's 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 so fun to do this with people it's the same thing you do when you're when you're when you're encouraging your your young child and that's a primary source of gratification for human beings is putting someone on the edge and encouraging them. And so you do that as a clinician. So I loved being a clinician because, it, you know, people say, well, how can you, you know, how how do you tolerate listening to people's problems? Well, first of all, they're not your problems. You have to understand that. Because if they're your problems, you're stealing that person's problems from them. You know, because you could come to me, especially people who are, you know, very unsophisticated. They could come and talk to somebody like a, a, a well experienced clinician, someone whose breadth of knowledge exceeds theirs by a substantial margin, and that person can just give them advice. But then they go act out that advice, and then that's not them. They have to come to it themselves. And this wraps up today's episode. Thanks for listening. If you felt moved by today's episode, feel free to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or subscribe for future episodes. Thanks again for listening. I'll see you tomorrow.